Good morning. So in Exodus chapter 3, we are going to encounter a man named Moses. Moses had been raised in the imperial court of Egypt as a son of Pharaoh. One day he avenged his countrymen and killed a man and had to flee for his life. And now for decades he's been tending sheep in the far side of the wilderness. And Moses goes out one day and there is a burning bush. And we'll pick up the narrative in chapter 3, verse 11. The Lord, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said to him, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the Lord or the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I say? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the God, or the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And then they have this dialogue, and, and Moses says, I, I don't know. And the Lord says, Moses, what's in your hand? He says, a staff. And the Lord said, throw it down. And he did. It became a snake. And Moses fled from the presence of the snake, which makes me think it was a pretty awesome poisonous snake because Moses has seen many snakes in the desert. And the Lord said, Moses, take out your hand and pick up the snake or the staff again. He did. It became a staff. And then he said, uh, Moses, look at your hand. He did. He said, now put your hand in your cloak. And he did. And it came out leprous. And the Lord said, put it back in. He put it back in and brought out normal. And he said, if that doesn't work, take up some water from the Nile and pour out the water and the water will become blood. But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent. Neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord Jehovah? Now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. Well, I read that and I think... Of, of us, and I think of the fact that Ephesians 6 says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the wilderness, against the authorities, against the powers of evil in this cosmic world, against spiritual forces of, of, of evil in the heavenly realms. And we are, we are in a struggle. It's not just a, a struggle, but it is a struggle. And, and the, the, the adversary of our souls comes along and he says things to us like this. Okay, as you think of Moses, you're too young, 
you're too old, you're not smart enough. Remember that sin or those sins you committed? How can God use someone like you? And and see, our, our problem is, instead of listening to the word of God, we listen to the voice of the adversary and we listen to our own voice. And I, 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 the Lord wants to use us. We are a holy nation, a people set apart for the purposes of God, a people that have been called from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. God wants to use us. Uh, I just returned from a trip. The last part of it was a week-long conference um, where people from five nations gathered with the International Mission Board, people from Mauritania, which is a very, very, very difficult place. Western Sahara, which is a very difficult place. Morocco, a difficult place. Algeria and Tunisia. We had about 285 to 90 people, including kids and workers. And it was a wonderful time. And we met in Switzerland, a conference center in Switzerland, which was a shock to us. And it was wonderful, it really was. But, but we were there, and these people have, are, are laboring in places, and they're, they're beginning to see in the last few years a movement of God in bringing people to faith that they have never experienced before. Many of them. Many of them are not. Many of them just labor and labor in very difficult places, and these are wonderful people. I was very impressed. We took the child care workers who did a phenomenal job. We took the worship team. Uh, Kelly Graham led that and did a, a wonderful job. And Kelly, I said to Kelly, I said, you're doing a great job. And he said, you need a, a blind squirrel could lead worship at this conference. I don't know what that means, but I, I, I take it, it means that it's pretty easy. And really, these people never get to worship. They never get to worship in English. And they worshiped. Let me tell you, they worshiped. And it was really glorious to be there. Uh, this is, they're supposed to, they usually have annual meetings where they come together for refreshment and worship and physicals and and because of budget cuts it's the first time they've had it in six years so this is a huge celebration and it was a wonderful time but but as i as i talked with them the first couple of days just met with them you know a lot of them are just they're just in the trenches and so i i kind of shared a historical overview of some of my favorite people just to encourage them and, and, and the point is this, that God uses unlikely people and unlikely situations to advance his kingdom. Now, I want to share part of that with you this morning, and as, as we have time and as the Lord allows. Um, just These are some of the people that I, are, are some of my heroes. I, w- I want to share how the Lord has used them and how he used people in their life. And I'm going to show you the picture without giving the name, kind of like Jeopardy, you know, Evangelical Jeopardy. Uh, this, picture, this, this guy died. Uh, in 1688 on August the 31st. So this week is his death date. He was raised in a very poor home, uh, had minimal education, married uh, a woman, uh, was married to her and they had four children. The only dowry she she brought into the marriage were were, were two books written by a pietist, a mystic. And this man read those books. He loved to read. but it talked nothing about the grace of the cross. And, and so as he read these books, he said, I, he said to himself, I need to have a moral reformation. And so he started trying to live the right, the right life. And he said, I became very proud of my religious uh, attitudes. 
which is an oxymoron if you've ever thought of that. I became very proud of my religious attitudes, but I knew nothing of Christ. I knew nothing of the grace of Christ. I knew nothing of the cross. And this is what happened. He, he was out selling. He, was, he sold pots and pans. And he went out selling pots and pans one day. And, and he says, let me just read from his biography about his salvation. He said, I was out selling one day, selling pots and pans. And in God's kind province, he brought me to Bedford. And I came upon four poor women discussing the things of God, the likes of which I had never, ever heard before. Far beyond my understanding, they spoke of the new birth in Christ, the work of God in their hearts, how they were convinced of their miserable state by nature. They talked about how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus Christ and with what words and promises they've been refreshed and comforted and supported against the temptation of the devil. He said, I've never heard anything like this. And he said, God struck me. And so he said, I, I, I mulled and I thought about it. And I, I, it hit me and it, and it went in my mind. This is what he says later. He says, as I thought about what I heard over the coming months, these words with power did over and over make a joyful sound within my soul. The words were, thou art my love, thou art my love, and nothing shall separate you from me. Romans eight thirty nine came to my mind. Now was my heart filled full of comfort and hope, and now I could believe that my sins should be forgiven. I remember one day during my travels, I was thinking upon all that I'd experienced during this time, and the scripture pressed upon me, he has made peace through the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.20, by which I was made to see both again and again and again that day that God and my soul are friends only by the blood of Christ. Yea, I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through this blood. This was a good day to me. I hope I shall never, ever, 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 ever forget it. Now, this man, of course, is John Bunyan. John Bunyan went on to become a preacher. He preached. He was told to not preach by the established church. He kept preaching. They, they put him in prison for 12 years. He had four children. His wife had died. His oldest daughter was blind. He was 12 years in prison, would not say, I will not preach. While he was in prison, he wrote the first draft of what most people say is the most famous book ever written apart from the Bible to the Christian church, a book called A Pilgrim's Progress. Live faithfully unto God. And I think, you know, what, what did God use? He used four women sunning themselves in Bedford talking about the glory of the cross. We don't know their names. I mean, anybody that's ever studied church history knows about John Bunyan. We do not know the names of those four women who spoke to John Bunyan of of the strong reality of the cross of Christ. Person number two. I named my son after this guy. He died in 1683, August 24th. He's called the Prince of the Puritans. Um. we know little about him, his life, because he never wrote about himself. But we do know he was raised in a godly home. He says, my father was a faithful worker in the vineyard of the Lord. Grew up in a Christian home. Went, went to Oxford. Graduated with honors from Oxford. Um, in, in fact, years later, he wrote a systematic theology in Latin, which I've, I've never done. And... Uh, so he's 26 years old. He's gone through Oxford. He is a convinced 
Calvinist. He said, I was a convinced Calvinist in my, my understanding of soteriology. He'd studied the Bible. He said, but, 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 I, he said, but, but I had no comfort. I had no joy. And so he said, I was 26, and there was a, a pastor of a church, a well-known pastor, who was to preach. And my cousin and I slipped in the back of the door to hear him preach. And, and he said, he said, somebody got him said, our, our pastor is sick, so we have a, a, a visiting person that's going to preach. We never heard of him. He didn't even give, him, give us his name. He got up and he preached. And, and, and he preached on uh, Matthew 8, where Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. And, and this guy talked about how, how the reality of the imputed goodness of Christ, the, the imputed righteousness of Christ, gives you a calmness of spirit. And, 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 and this man said, as this, as this man preached, he opened my soul. And he said, I left comforted and full of joy. Either that was his salvation, or, but something deeply happened in his life. And from that point forward, he never looked back. He was 26. The guy's name is, is, is John Owen. John, John Owen, listen, this is amazing to me. Uh, the, church history does more for me apart from Scripture than anything else. I'm sorry for that, because some of you are going, good grief, but it does. John Owen and his wife had 11 children. Listen to this, 11 children. Ten of them died before the age of 16, three in one year. He buried his only surviving child when she was in her 20s, and he buried his wife. He buried 11 children and his wife in his lifetime. I go, how did he ever function again? He was, he, he was head of Oxford. He was chaplain to Oliver Cromwell's armies. He preached to Parliament. Uh, I just brought this in here. There, there's, uh, these are, there, there are 16 volumes there's 16 volumes of his collected works. This is just, the, the, I just grabbed the first. 16, they're all this big. And, and look, there are no pictures. <laughs> and, and you really have to have reading. I mean, this, he, no spell check. I mean, unbelievable. And I, I go, good grief. John Owen. Good grief. 11 kids. God, for, don't ever let me do that. Have to go there. But to bury a child, God, please, God, no. But eleven of them. Why? In part, an unknown country preacher substituted and preached the gospel of grace, and God opened his heart. We don't know the guy's name. God does. We will in heaven. He was just faithful to the task. So, may I read this and I go. John Owen. I mean, (laughs) somebody wrote a track, the question, the perseverance of the saints, eternal security. John Owen got upset and he wrote a 600-page book to support the perseverance of the saints. 600 pages. Let me just, it wasn't a blog. 600 pages. Now, always, when I, I think about these people, it always helps to be a genius, you know, so we're not there. Many of us aren't. I'm not. All right. Next person. This young lady was from Virginia. Uh, she was raised in a privileged home in the pre-Civil War South. 
went to Albemarle Academy that was associated with the Charlottesville Baptist Church, had a couple of professors. One was named Broadus, one was named Toy. John Broadus, who became a very well-known, godly pastor and theologian, said she was the brightest pupil I ever had. The other professor, Crawford Toy, said, I've never seen anyone who could write English the way she could write. She wrote beautifully. She learned English, German, Spanish, and French at Albemarle Academy. Um, the war came. She went home to be with her mom. After the war, she taught. But while she was at Albemarle Academy as a student, uh, 18 years old or so, she was a skeptic. She made fun of the Christian faith. And the head of the academy, John Broadus, decided to have some nights of prayer for people without Christ. And so all of her friends were praying for, praying for this young lady whose name was Charlotte Diggs. Those are first two names, Charlotte. And they prayed for her, and they, they pled with her to come to faith in Christ, to consider the gospel. And she, she laughed at them. She, she mocked them. And then one night after some people had played with her, she went to bed, and she couldn't sleep because a dog was barking. And she said, as I lay in bed with that barking dog, unable to sleep, I started thinking about my eternal reality before the God who is. And I started thinking about if I were to die, I would go to hell. And then I started thinking about the glory of the cross. And she got up the next day and she went to the worship service that night. And she listened intently and she went home. And sometime during that time, she committed her life to Christ because of her friends and a barking dog. It's amazing. I'm not saying we're barking dogs. But God uses friends to plead us to enter the kingdom. She went on and became a missionary to China. Her, her name was Lottie Moon. You hear about her every Christmas. She became a missionary, missionary to China in, uh, went to, in 1873, single woman. She's in China eight years. She's living in a, a hut. This is, this is an aside. She's living in a hut about 200 miles from the coast in, in, in incredibly difficult circumstances. And she strikes up a, a, a correspondence with her former teacher, Crawford Toy, who now is at Harvard professor of Semitic languages at Harvard. And they write back and forth. He asked her to marry him. She writes to the head of the mission board and said, I'm engaged to Crawford Toy. And he writes back and says, you need to check him out. What had happened, he had departed from conservative, Bible-believing, Orthodox Christianity and had become something else. When she found out what he had become, she broke off the engagement. Now, I'm saying this for our single people. She broke off her engagement. She's living in a hut in the middle of China with no other Westerners, and she's being courted by this attractive Ph.D. from Harvard. And she says, because you have departed from the reality of who God is in his triune glory, I cannot ever consider marrying you. And she broke it off. And she stayed there another 30 years and died. And again, I look back and I go, good grief. But then I go back and say, who, who was responsible for this dynamo that, that is people who just played with her to come to Christ? God wants to use you. God wants to use me. Um, next is this guy. This guy died at 430, so we don't have a photograph of him. One of the greatest teachers in the church. Um, immoral young man. Mother prayed for him without ceasing. His father introduced him to immorality. Um, 
he was a professor of rhetoric, gifted, gifted. He kept hearing the gospel and hearing the gospel as an older, as an older youth and a young man. And, and he kept spurning it and turning away and says, Lord, I, 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 I don't, I don't want, I just don't want that yet. And so he was just dealt with, with conviction. And one day he was out with a buddy named Alpheus in a garden, his garden, and they were walking around. And this man said to his friend, I am more miserable than I can even begin to tell you. And his friend said, you need to consider Christ. And he walked away from saying, I don't want to do that. And so as he walked on, there was a little, over the wall, there was a voice of a little girl who said, pick it up and read. (laughs) Pick it up and read. And this man said, I took that as a word from God. It's interesting. So he went over to the Bible and he opened up his Bible and and it fell to this text. His name is Augustine. It fell to this text. Let us not... Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's a pretty strong word. Came to faith in Christ, turned from his sinful ways. Two years later, he wrote this. And what I feared to be parted from was now a joy to part with, for you cast them from me, you the true and the highest sweetness. One of the greatest teachers in the church. I think, you know, what, what, what led a praying mama, a friend who pled, and the circumstantial rhyme of a little girl or boy? He said, I can tell if it's a girl or boy's voice. God wants to use you. We don't know the name of that little child. The mama's name was Monica. God wants to use you. God wants to use you to reach your friends, to reach the nations. God wants to use you. And the devil's ploy is to say, you're too old, you're too young, you're not smart enough, you don't have time. Look to God. Next one. Gives me hope because he's not very good looking. God can use people that aren't very good looking to serve his purposes. <laughs> this guy died in 1892. He was 58. Um, raised kind of by his granddaddy. I never really understood that, but his granddaddy raised him who was a godly Puritan, lover of the Puritans, a preacher. This little boy was reading Puritan sermons at the age of three, which I, I didn't. Um, knew all about the gospel, um, but didn't, couldn't put it together. So, so one day in 1850, he's 16 years old, he, he's going to, to church, but an incredible snowstorm hits London, and he could not get to his church. And so he, he valiantly trudged through, you know, deep snow, and he got to the nearest church he could find, which he says was a primitive Methodist chapel. And he said, I got in there in his small church, but I slipped up in the balcony. And he said, I looked up front, and there were 12 people huddled together. And they were waiting for the preacher to come. But he couldn't get there because of the snow. And so finally, after a while, they kind of said okay and shook, shook their heads. And so one man stood up, and he said, I haven't prepared a sermon. 
uh, our pastor can't be here, but I'm just going to preach on this text. And it was Isaiah 45, verses, verse 22. This says, look to him, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Look to him, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And let me tell you what this man says. <clears throat> he said, this man began his sermon. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, that does not take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, quote, look unto me, close quote. I, he said, in a broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. This man says, Then the good man followed up his text this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross for your sins. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. When he had got about at the length length of his tether, he says. It took him all of 10 minutes to spin out. Then he looked up in the gallery. He was sitting by himself. No one else was up there. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And then he said, young man, you look miserable. That's pretty pointy preaching. (laughs) Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text and look to Jesus. But if you obey now, this moment, you shall be saved. And this man continued, then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus. God's time. Now, we don't know the name of this primitive Methodist layman who had one arrow in his quiver. But he preached Jesus. And, of course, the the man's name is Charles Spurgeon. Wonderful use of God. Uh, keep on going. I got several things here. Let's see. This guy uh, was five foot two, privileged home, very wealthy. His daddy died, and his mama sent him to live with his aunt and uncle. His aunt and uncle had a best friend named John Newton. He started hearing the gospel. He became very interested in the gospel. As a 9 to 12-year-old, his mama heard about his enthusiasm for religious things and was appalled and jerked him out of the home. He didn't hear anything about the gospel for years and years and years. He became very, uh, uh, well, non-spiritual, to say the least, uh, gifted vocally, a gifted speaker, was elected a member of parliament. His best friend was William Pitt, who became prime minister. Uh, he had He was kind of had no moorings and one summer he was going to go to Europe and tour Europe and he asked a young man named Isaac Milner who was 
just a guy he knew, says, you want to go with me? And Isaac Milner said, I'll go with you only if we study the Greek New Testament together. And this man said, sure, no big deal. So they went to Europe and studied the Greek New Testament together. God used the Word of God to convert this man. He came back from his trip a different man. And as he entered into Parliament, he said, the, the Lord has laid on my heart two things. Number one, to abolish slavery in the British Empire and to reform manners in this country, to raise decency, civility. He labored for 30 years to abolish slavery. He and a group did because of the lordship of Christ and because a man named Isaac Milner shared the gospel with him. He spent a large part of his considerable monies for Bible translation around the world. He insisted that the British government allow missionaries to go into India and to speak against atrocities such as exposing infant girls and sooty where widows would throw themselves on the burning corpses of their husbands under duress. Wonderfully used of God because one man named Isaac Milner said, let's study the Bible together. God wants to use you. You know, I, I think about this man and I think about our country and I think about the war between the states and I think of 620,000 men that were killed because we didn't have a Wilberforce. We didn't have a Clapham sect like he came from. God wants to use you. We will Wilberforce. Got time for a couple more. Just one more than something else. Um, this man was, um, he's a great man. <laughs> he, he was uh, apprenticed to be a cobbler because he was allergic to the sun. He wanted to be a botanist, but he couldn't be in the sun. And so he's in this shop. He's, his fellow apprentice is a man named Peter War. That's all we know about him, his name. And Peter Ward started preaching Christ to his co-worker and said, will you please go to church with me? He said, no. Finally, after months, he went to church, heard the gospel through a series of events. He trusted Christ. Uh, as he studied the Bible and studied the maps of the world, he said the masses have never heard of Jesus. And so in 1793, he went to India. He stayed there for, for 41 years, and he died there. He was a father of modern-day missions, William Carey. I just, and I go back and say, you know, God used a young apprentice named Peter War to share Christ with him. God wants to use us, guys. Um, I was at a funeral this week on Friday. And, and a lady got up, and she sang beautifully, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. It's a, really a, it's, it's a quote from Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, you're worth more than many sparrows. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly Father's knowledge. So she says, his eye is on the sparrow, and, and I know he watches over me. You, you ask me she says, why I'm happy. You ask me why I sing. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches over me. When she's saying that, I thought about something I read recently about, about a man who's in Cambodia with a group of Christians, and he was in this dialogue with a group of Buddhist monks, and um, they were just exchanging ideas. And one night they said, we'd like to just sing you some gospel hymns. 
And so they started, they just sang seven or eight gospel hymns and had a good time. And then they turned to these Buddhist dignitaries and Buddhist monks and said, would you please sing us some of your Buddhist hymns? And they were confused and they started, when guys, they spoke to each other in, in Cambodian and they started chanting something. And then the leader said, said did this, said stop. He says, you know, we don't sing. We, we don't sing. And the reason is they have no reason to sing. You see, if you're a Buddhist, you're working your way by self-effort to God through many lifestyles and transmigrations of the soul. You're always in process of being accepted by the God who cannot be defined. We sing because our sins are forgiven by Jesus. We sing because we have the hope of heaven. We sing. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. We sing. Sing. Rejoice. God wants to use you. It's always good to come home and to pick up an international magazine and to see where my home state, this great state, has made the international news. Picked up an international magazine and said, the first ever Starbucks has been ensconed in a funeral home in South Carolina. Never before has a Starbucks been put in a funeral home, except now it's in South Carolina. And it's a real Starbucks. So the, what do you the guys that serve the bar, 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 what do you call them, the bar? baristas? Okay, I don't go to Starbucks. I'm not a coffee drinker. Praise God, I'm sanctified. But anyway, the baristas, <laughs> the baristas, they're, they're wearing the Starbucks paraphernalia. This is a real Starbucks. They serve Starbucks, and it quoted the funeral home director, whose name I will not give, I don't think it's local. If it is, well, may the chips fall where they will. But he says, he says, he says I, we're, there, we're here to make people happy and to take their minds off of what is going on. I thought, boy, that, I, I love funerals. This, I guess the caption of this funeral home is, we put the fun back in funeral. I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> I just thought of that. I don't know. It's not worth speaking. But anyway, uh, I, when I go to funerals, I told you this before, you know, weddings, people are there to, to go to the party. They're looking at how beautiful the bride is and how nervous the groom is. And, and I, they, they don't hear what I say. At funerals, I'm telling you, people are lasered in. I want them to know what's going on. I want them to know that eternity awaits every man, woman, and child. I want them to know there's a great God who became man and spoke with authority and dignity and power and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for the sin of all those who would claim him and he rose victorious over death and he is building his kingdom and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and the grave has lost its victory and death has lost its sting. It's been swallowed up by the greatness of Jesus. I want them to know that. And I want them to know that God wants to use us. And I want us to go forward together. And I, I want you to meet some people now who are going to be helping energize our North Campus in Goose Creek. We're going to pray for them. Some of these, these people have said, we're, we'll go there for at least a year and we're going to stand and labor together and do the things of God. So Craig Tuck is our campus pastor and he's doing a great job. We have a second campus in Goose Creek and we're going to pray for these folks. This is the only service they'll be in because they got to go up there and do their ministry but we're glad they're here and uh
we're going to pray for them and send them out. And Craig told me not to be too discouraged because they're pretty, a pretty rough-looking group. <laughs> well, these guys are going to our North Campus. They're going to be teaching and leading and praying and serving and representing Christ. So we're so thankful for them and uh, thankful for their standing. So let's pray for them. Lord, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for the goodness of the gospel. And we thank you that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And we thank you that there are people in this great city uh, whose hearts you are preparing to receive the word. People who've never heard the cross. People who have some understanding of God that is generic. We want to preach Jesus. We pray for our, our, our Goose Creek campus. We pray, God, you would energize this group. We pray that you'd give Craig an anointing from, from above to be the man and the leader you call him to be. We thank you for him. We pray, God, that you would send these out under the power and provision that only you can bring through the cross of Jesus. Holy Spirit, bless them, we pray. Energize them, we pray. Uh, God, do not let us listen to the voice of the adversary that says you're too old, you're too young, you're not smart enough, you've done, you've done too many stupid things. Lord, thank you that you use men and women who are unnamed in church history to touch people and people groups who spread the good news of Christ to the ends of the earth, to the glory of your name. So bless them, I pray, O oh God. Bless us, Lord. May we walk under your authority, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.